must confess my, my own partialness to that old-timey music. All who are able are invited to stand for the reading of the gospel lesson. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. But when King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him, and calling together all the chiefs priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring him to me, so that I may also go and pay him homage. And when they had heard the king, they set out, and they, there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, the gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. Jennifer and I were talking the other day. I celebrated my 15th anniversary here at Douglas on Monday. So, well, thank you. I appreciate that. So, so we're, I mean, we're commenting on other work anniversaries within the past couple months. Our music director, Ben Powell, also uh, celebrated an anniversary this week, his 10th. <laughs> While Amy Powell has been here even longer than I have. I'm not sure of the correct number of years. And Joanna, our financial secretary, just recently celebrated her 20th anniversary here. Our organist, Alan Martin, will celebrate his 10th next year. And 24? My 10th is in 2024. That's why I said next year. I'm just a humanities guy, but 
<laughs> and of course, Jennifer herself has been here for over 21 years now. Now, it says a great deal about a congregation to have that kind of longevity in its staff. Because either we're all the victims of some next-level mind control stuff, or this is just a great place to be. I suspect I can speak for the others when I say that, at least in our estimation, it's the former, uh, it's the latter and not the former. <laughs> Being the pastor of Douglas Boulevard Christian Churches is how I would draw up my vocational career map if somebody asked me to imagine what the perfect job for me would look like. So, thank you. From all of us, thank you. This place feels not only like home, but also makes the thought of other jobs impossible to imagine. But, at least for me, this was not supposed to be my life. After my last ministry position, I've, I've mentioned before to some people, I never wanted to work in a church again. Now, putting it that way makes me sound really decisive, like in control of my own destiny. But in reality, my wife saw what ministry had cost me, and she told me that she'd divorce me if I ever tried to be a pastor again. Now, for those of you who don't know, the way I got started at DBCC was a three-month interim that I did for my predecessor, uh, Dean Bucalis, when he went on sabbatical to France, God bless his heart, and the fine people of DBCC and the Lilly Endowment hired me to fill in over the summer of 2006, which was before I was scheduled to begin teaching at UofL in the fall of 2006. Now, the whole experience was so wonderful that when Stephen Johns Burma, an associate regional minister and a member here at the time, called me after Thanksgiving a year later in 2007, and, 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 and Melissa Newell-Smith called shortly thereafter, and asked me if I'd like to come back to do another interim after Dean moved on to, to some other things, it was an easy decision for Susan and I both. I said, absolutely. But I, I, I never really intended to stick around uh, longer than a year, maybe 18 months. So as I thought of it then, this job was fine for, you know, while I was preparing to finish my PhD and start over again as a university professor. In fact, it seemed perfect as a short-term gig. I mean, I get to work with and for people that I cared about for a little while until I could move on to the next exciting stage of my career, all while making some much-needed money. It's what the kids call a win-win. But see, the thing of it was, those first six months were difficult here. I mean, first off, we had, we had a shake-up with the staff over a serious issue. We had a, a sizable kind of scandal among some uh, of the members. It broke several people's hearts. Someone who'd asked to pray in our sanctuary went into our balcony and stole thousands of dollars worth of sound equipment. 
And finally, we initiated and completed the months-long process of becoming an open and affirming congregation, publicly vowing to welcome and celebrate our LGBTQ siblings, which was an especially tense process because five years prior, the, that process, the same one, had led to several people leaving the church. Oh, and Dominic was born. And I had to study, had to study for and pass three comprehensive exams for my degree. That, that was my first six months on the job here. And then on January 28, 2008, the congregation, after that long process, voted to become open and affirming without a single dissenting vote. I was blown away by that. I went home and I told Susan about it, and her words to me were, if you want to keep working there permanently, I guess you better call and tell somebody. So I called Dick Burks, who was on the pastoral search committee that Sunday afternoon, June 28th, and told him that I'd like to be considered for the permanent job of senior pastor here at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church. If, of course, the church thought that would be a good idea. Apparently, in 2000, uh, March 2009, they did because they voted to call me permanently, and here I am. So here's the thing. I, I didn't realize I wanted this job until long after I'd agreed to start working here. From my perspective, this was entirely the wrong career for me. I, I always wanted to be a university professor. I don't think I ever wanted to be a minister. I, 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 let, I mean, let's just be honest. I, mean, I can't imagine many places taking a look at me and thinking, yeah, that guy should be our next minister. So I mean, this was the wrong job, and I was the wrong guy. Did that ever happen to you? I mean, you have a picture of how things are supposed to be, a vision of how the world is supposed to turn out, only to find out that psh, you were wrong. You were utterly, shockingly, blessedly wrong. Do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's the subtext of our gospel this morning. I mean, everything about this is wrong place is wrong. The people are wrong. Even the king is wrong. I mean, look at the cast that makes up the moving parts of this little drama. I mean, you've got a vulnerable new child bride and mother. You've got the guy whose pals down at Jewish Carpenters Local 218 are convinced that he's been uh, that he's been deceived by his young bride, an unwed, pregnant teenage girl. You've got a client ruler who calls himself the king of the Jews, who's only half Jewish and has always, therefore, been greeted with suspicion by his Jewish subjects. And then if all that weren't enough, you've got some directionally challenged magi who've traveled a great distance around the Fertile Crescent in search of another king about whom they know shockingly little. Now, let's just start there. 
These, these magi, whom, uh, about whom we sing on Epiphany Sunday, they're, the, they're most likely Persian and Zoroastrian, which is to say they were Gentiles. But nevertheless, they, they believe they read the stars correctly and they were on the verge of some great sign. Now, we've tended to glorify these Persian emissaries. We've called them kings, wise men. I mean, they brought gold and, and, and frankincense and, and myrrh. And they were obviously well-connected enough to have some sense of both prophecy and how to read the stars. So that feels like some serious credibility right there. I mean, foreign dignitaries and all. But, but see, that's where we get off track. But these weren't kings. They, they were magi. And the rest of the ancient, in the rest of the ancient world, magi had always had a kind of a sticky reputation with people in power. Rulers always seemed to want uh, the magi on their side. That is, until those magi prophesied something the power brokers didn't like to hear, like the coming of the king's impending death or defeat. I mean, think about the, the Merlin and King Arthur, right? And it was worse in Palestine, because Jews had this big hang-up about magi. God had commanded God's people to avoid magic, sorcery, witchcraft, which, if you'll note, is really kind of part of the job description in the Magi HR employee handbook. And as a result, Magi were often the kind of people who found themselves on the sharp end of the Jewish legal stick. Now, additionally, part of what made Jews so antsy around these particular Magi was not only the fact that they were Gentiles and Magi, but that they could read the stars something that the Jews were always suspicious of. I mean, it's definitely the wrong sorts of people to read the signs and go to the trouble of visiting Jesus. Somebody else should have been leading that parade. Certainly not stargazing Gentile magi. But see, what's the problem if you follow that logic? Nobody else does go apart from the shepherds and Luke, but in Matthew, we don't know anybody else went to see him. Think about it. When, when Herod, the guy called the king of the Jews, hears about the Magi who've come looking for the Messiah, he panics. Now remember, Messiah wasn't some sort of spiritual honorific, like, like, like Lord or, or, or Savior. Messiah was a, a, a role. It was a person. An honest-to-goodness, flesh-and-blood human being who was set apart by God to stand against God's enemies. And, and, and whatever messianic expectation existed in Jesus' time, the issue that unified it, the Jews of Palestine, was getting rid of the Romans and their greedy political lackeys who kept almost everyone else poor so that a few at the top could retain their wealth and power. Now, a Messiah, which is a Hebrew word translated as 
God's anointed, was a political military leader raised up by God as a kind of champion whose job was to defeat God's enemies. The ancient Jewish belief was that a Messiah could be anyone that God chose at a particular time and place to overcome God's enemies and restore Jewish political and religious sovereignty. In fact, even King Cyrus of Persia is called a Messiah in the first verse of chapter 45 of Isaiah because he's the one that God raises up to overthrow the Babylonians and let the exiles come home. Messiahs were not a rare thing. It wasn't until the end of the first century after Jerusalem and the temple had been destroyed by the Romans that people started talking about the Messiah. Reza Aslan points out, for example, that Jesus was likely born the same year that Judas the Galilean, Judas the failed Messiah, son of Hezekiah the failed Messiah, rampaged through the countryside burning with zeal. Jesus would have been about 10 years old when the Romans captured Judas, crucified his followers, and destroyed the city of Sepphoris. And Sepphoris was the town just up the road from Nazareth, Jesus' hometown. So as it stands, King Herod, the king who sufficiently brown-nosed Caesar enough to become Caesar's man in Palestine, he had a great deal to fear from anyone who might be a rival for the title King of the Jews. Now, Herod knew what we, living in 2023, know. You need to take potential insurrectionists seriously and put them down before they ever build up enough support to storm the palace and vote on their own. Somebody into power. So consequently, Herod had a great deal to fear from any Messiah who would, by definition, be a potential political threat. All Herod, uh, excuse me, Herod calls all the high chief priests and the scribes together and he asks them, you guys are supposed to know, where's, where's this Messiah going to be born? Now the position of the high priest was a political appointment that Herod himself had made. So when Herod summoned the chief priests and the scribes, he was calling one of his cabinet members and their staff. And the political entourage who gathered promptly tell Herod that according to the prophet Micah, a Messiah is supposed to be born in the little town of Bethlehem. This otherwise forgettable little hamlet had one crucial distinguishing characteristic. It was the home of the greatest king of the Jews, King David. Now that news would have given Herod an even more intense bout of heartburn. But I mean, royal nostalgia aside, tiny insignificant Bethlehem is definitely the wrong place for a new king to be born. Instead, he should have been born in Jerusalem, the Palestinian heart of Roman power and Jewish religious authority. That's the place. Warren Carter writes, but. In God's scheme, Bethlehem is the place 
of new creation. And Jerusalem, the place of fear, because God's actions challenge invested interests and powers. So, how does Herod handle the news about the birth of this potential new political rival? Not well. He secretly summons these wandering Persian magi, whom he sends on a kind of reconnaissance mission to Bethlehem. He tries to convince them that his interest in this Messiah from Bethlehem is purely benign. He just wants to know where this sawed-off little political upstart, I mean, darling little tyke, is. He, he just wants to send his regards, you know, a, a box of pampers and a, a, a case of difficult-to-find baby formula. That, that. But the Magi immediately sense that something's up. The fact that Herod called them secretly is a tip-off. He didn't view these well-traveled magi as dignitaries, but as servants. If Herod had been on the up and up, diplomatic protocol dictated that he would receive them publicly. So calling them in secret indicates that Herod is up to something, and he views them as servants that he can order around to spy on his potential political rival. If Herod really wanted to know where this Messiah was so that he could go up himself and offer worship, he wouldn't have dispatched spies. He would have put together a team of diplomatic envoys, gotten in his heavily armored presidential limo, and gone to see the baby himself. King to potential king. But he doesn't go. Instead, he stays where he is, and he waits for the intel. To recap so far, the Magi, who were the wrong people, are apparently the only ones paying close enough attention to read the signs and make the arduous journey to honor the coming of the new king of the Jews. Of course, all of that should have been undertaken by the guy who currently called himself the king of the Jews and should have been led by the people who were supposed to be the religious leaders of the Jews. And, and frankly, if this were a story about smart politics, the Magi would have found this new king in Washington, D.C., not in Harlan. Instead, the new Messiah was born in the wrong place. And he was born to the wrong people, a local artisan and an unwed mother from nowhere. And having learned where this new Messiah is, Herod sends the wrong kind of delegation. If his interest in finding this new Messiah were innocent, he would have sent a political, religious delegation to do the advance work so that the current king of the Jews could properly pay his respects to the potential king of the Jews. But instead, Herod tips his hand and he treats the Magi not as foreign dignitaries, but as his own servants that he can send wherever he wants to do his bidding. So, so everything about this story of the clash of the kings is wrong. Wrong people, wrong place, wrong motives. But you see, that gives us a clue about the character of the new world that God is creating. True power, God's creative power, will never be found in the place logic tells us to look, among the people logic tells us to expect. 
This, this new realm that Jesus inaugurates will always be found among the least likely people in the most outrageous places. People and places that no intelligent, successful, influential folks would ever think to look. See, God's not only willing, but determined to do everything wrong. That's the good news of Easter, excuse me, of Epiphany. The good news for those of us who fear that maybe we aren't the right people to help usher in this new world. It's good news for us who are convinced that surely God could do better than us. Because the truth of it is, God doesn't need much. Just a handful of despised servants and spies kicking about insignificant backwaters, trying to find Jesus, trying to find the way home. Thanks again for tuning in to the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please rate the podcast on iTunes, retweet the link, or just tell your friends. Godspeed until next time on the Douglas Boulevard Christian Church Podcast.